0: We are up to chapter 5, Mishnah number 5. And we're going to read it and then we'll go through it, of course, as we always do. Asara Nisim Na'asul Avusenim Mitzrayim. There were 10 miracles done for our ancestors in Egypt. Ve'asara Al-Hayam. And 10 additional miracles that happened to our ancestors at the sea. As we know, a week after the Exodus, the Jewish people had absconded, had hightailed out of Egypt, and then the Egyptians found out that they ain't coming back, and they pursued them, and on day seven, we have this standoff at the sea, the Jewish people are surrounded by their enemies, behind them is just the water, and one of the most miraculous events in all of human history happened, the Jewish people enter the water, and the water splits, and they're able to walk along walkable paths amidst The water, the Egyptians make the unfortunate and fatal decision to follow suit and the water crashes down upon them whereupon the Egyptian enemy has finally been vanquished. And in the aftermath of that, the Jewish people erupt into spontaneous song and that's recorded, of course, in Parshas Beshalach in the book of Exodus and they continue onward. And the rest of the narrative continues. So there were 10 miracles, we're told, in Egypt. The 10 plagues, of course, that are delineated in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. And then there were 10 additional miracles that happened to the Jewish people at the sea. Moreover, continues the Mishnah. Makos the Almighty brought 10 plagues upon the Egyptians in Egypt just like the Jewish people experienced 10 miracles in Egypt and 10 miracles at the sea, the Egyptians as well, they underwent, they were plagued with 10 plagues in Egypt, al and 10 additional plagues at the sea. So this is continuing the theme that we've had in this chapter hitherto. We have the 10 utterances that God used. To create the world, the ten, the ten generations from Adam to Noah, the ten generations from Noah to Abraham, the ten tests of Abraham. And then we have the ten miracles at the sea and the ten miracles in Egypt. Now we know what the ten miracles and the ten plagues for the Egyptians were in Egypt because that is told in great detail in the Torah, in the book of Exodus in scripture. What exactly happened at the splitting of the sea? What were the 10 plagues slash miracles that happened at the sea? The Torah does not spell it out, does not flesh it out in scripture. And therefore, it's kind of open-ended here. And every commentary has their own list of what exactly were these 10 events, these 10 miracles slash plagues that happened at the sea. Now, it is interesting that one of the central components of the Haggadah that we use to take us through the Seder night, the first night of Pesach, one of the sections talks about how many miracles and plagues happened in Egypt and at the sea. And the first opinion says there were 10 plagues in Egypt and 50 plagues at the sea. And the second opinion says, no, 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 no. There were 40 plagues in Egypt and 200 Plates at the sea. And the third opinion says no, there were 50 plagues in Egypt and there were 250 plagues at the sea. And this, of course, is a Mishnah that looks at it in a much more minimalistic sense. There were 10 in Egypt and 10 at the sea. And the positions, the opinions in the Haggadah are offered by Tanoim, i.e., people that come from the era of the Mishnah, so the fact that there is a dispute between our Mishnah and the sages in the Haggadah, that is not unusual. But it is important to note for this Mishnah that we have a more maximalist version of what happened at the sea and even in Egypt itself, featured in the Haggadah. I do have a theory. We know the beginning of the Haggadah that we say on Pesach night, on the Seder night, it tells a story of the five great sages that spent Pesach, spent Passover together in the city of B'nei Brak, And they were so engrossed in the story of telling over the Exodus narrative that they spent the entire night discussing it. Until it was morning and it was time to pray the morning prayers. And their students had to come and usher them away from their discussions detailing what happened at the Exodus to go pray the morning prayers. And the question that everyone is always wondering about, wait a minute, what were they talking about? What were they occupying themselves with the entire night? What part of the story are they elaborating upon? And if we say that there were 250 different discrete miracles and plagues that happened at the splitting of the sea, there's obviously a lot of detail and a lot of richness to the story that we are not aware of. So maybe, perhaps, the great sages were detailing and enumerating all 250 miracles. And that, of course, would take a while. But our Mishnah talks about 10 miracles in Egypt and 10 at the sea. So what were 10 at the sea? Like we said, every commentary has its own list. I want to go through the list Offered by the Bartenura, one of the great commentaries on Mishnah. So the first miracle that happened at the sea is quite simple: the waters split. The Jewish people jump into the water, and Nachshon is the first one to go in. The Talmud tells us, the Book of Sota, page thirty-seven A. Nachshon jumps in, and the waters reach his nostrils. And he prays. The guy says, "Okay, Hidu Mayim nafish, The waters have reached my soul." And miraculously, the water split. Miracle number one. Miracle number two is that the waters didn't just split and go vertical. They actually became like a dome, like in the words of the Bartonur, like a tent hovering above them. And the Jewish people were walking like in a tunnel underneath the umbrella of water. Miracle number three is that the seabed became dry. Miracle number four is that for the Egyptians, it became like a quagmire of mud that they got caught up in. Number five, that miraculously, the dry land beneath the feet of the Jewish people became like nicely, neatly paved stones. Moreover, miracle number six, the water... The walls of water that were on either side of them hardened. Number seven. The miracle number seven, as detailed by the Barton is that the water split into 12 walkable paths. Each tribe had their own path. Number eight. The water became glazed over like glass, and each tribe can see all the other tribes through this window of water, these walls of water, on either side. Moreover, they were all illuminated by the pillar of fire that was accompanying the Jewish people. Miracle number nine, even though this was the sea, and seawater, of course, is salty, they were able to get fresh water from the walls of the uh, the water at their sides, and it was desalinated for them. And finally, after they drank, the water once again stiffened, the water hardened, and that is miracle number 10. So we see over here a very rich and colorful description of what had happened to the Jewish people at the splitting of the sea. They're walking, not only are they being saved, but the miracle is, is so dramatic it's so stunning. It's so amazing. They are enraptured by this tremendous miracle. The water becomes hardened that they could see each other. And the Egyptians, of course, get caught up in the morass and the quagmire. And they are destroyed. Now, the joke that I always like to say about this, it's actually not true. It's apocryphal. It never happened but I heard it from my science teacher in high school and I feel like I have to tell it to y'all. I have to tell it to y'all. It's a joke. So perhaps you are familiar with the ethnic Jewish food called gefilte fish. Now what is gefilte fish? Gefilte fish is kind of a mixture of various different fishes or fish that are mixed with all kinds of potions, Now, as someone who doesn't really eat fish, I know I should be eating fish. I know I need my omega-3 and omega-6. But ever since I was a kid, I just loathed the notion of fish. I couldn't stand the smell of fish. The greatest compliment you could ever give fish is that it tastes like chicken. So I never liked fish. Don't blame me. Don't send me angry emails. That's just the way it is. But many Jewish families have a custom to eat gefilte fish on Shabbos. And the question is, what's the origin of this fish patty called gefilte fish? How did it become such a ubiquitous custom amongst Jewish families to eat this on Friday night and some people even on Shabbos lunch? So the story goes is that the Jewish people, they were escaping from the Egyptians. And then finally they were surrounded and they were terrified. And they ran to Moses and they said to Moses, save us. What, what's what's going to be? And Moses started praying. And they're terrified. They, 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 they all think they're going to die. Suddenly the water splits. And they start running, hightailing into the water. And what a miracle. Amazing. And the Egyptians follow and they get crashed down upon him. But in the middle of this walk, the Jews tell Moshe, We're so sweaty. We're so thirsty. Give us some water. So Moshe says to him, I don't get it. We're in the middle of the sea. Everywhere you look, there's walls of water on every side of us. You need water, there's plenty of water. So they say to Moshe, yeah, there's plenty of water, but it's after all, it's all seawater. It's all seawater. It's all salty. We can't drink this water. So Moshe's sitting there and he's kind of mulling over his options and figure out what to do. And suddenly, a little fish jumps out of the water and starts speaking to Moses. And the fish tells Moses, Moses, I have a solution. I have this very intricate technology in my stomach where I can desalinate the water for you. I could swallow all the salt, or all the seawater, and then I'll remove the salt in my stomach, and then I'll shoot out jets, torrents of fresh water, And everyone can drink from this like water fountain I'll create. So Moshe says, oh, amazing. This sounds like a great idea. But the fish says, I have a condition. I have a condition. What's the condition? Every Friday night, every Jewish family around the whole world will have to eat me on their Shabbos table. Is it a deal? Is it a deal? And Moshe says, you got a deal. Go filter fish. That's the joke that I heard in high school. Apparently, from the Bartonura, it's actually not true. It's apocryphal, the story, because that was one of the miracles that the water itself became desalinated. Anyhow, there's an interesting angle to this Mishnah. So we're told there 10 miracles in Egypt, 10 at the sea, 10 plagues in Egypt, 10 at the sea. What is the significance Of the fact that there were 10, of course 10 is an important number as evidenced by the fact that it's featured again and again in successive Mishnayos in our chapter. But why specifically must the exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt, why must it be done in a staggered fashion, in a tiered fashion? First, there are miracles in Egypt, 10 miracles for the Jewish people, coupled with 10 plagues for the Egyptians, and then once they leave, they go to the sea and tend more miracles for the Jewish people and tend more plagues for the Egyptians. And only then can the Jewish people finally shake themselves free of their Egyptian oppressor. And I think the answer is that what happened over here in Egypt with the whole exodus, it was a transformation not only for the Jewish people, but also for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. When the story started, the Jewish people had become submerged in the Egyptian way of life. They had lost that special quality of a belief that they're an independent nation with a grand history, with a bright future. They became slaves to Pharaoh. And they also began to adopt the ways of their idolatrous neighbors. And with the Exodus... There was a transformation, the transformation that not only changed the Jewish people from being a subjugated nation of slaves to Pharaoh and transformed them into a nation of freemen subject to God and not to Pharaoh, but the Egyptians as well were changed. They went from a nation that totally rejected faith. When Moshe initially came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said to him, who is God that I shall listen to him? He was dubious. He was skeptical of this whole idea, of this one invisible God. And over the course of these 10 plagues, he begins to soften his opposition. And he begins to embrace the precepts of faith. And he starts to accept the fact that God's in control. And his power is limited. And eventually, He yields and sends away all his slaves. So the Jewish people and the Egyptian people both came to faith, but they took very different paths to get there. The Jewish people experienced miracles, and that brought them to faith. And the Egyptians experienced plagues that crippled them, that humbled them, that brought them to their knees, and that brought them to faith. And therefore, these two stories are concurrent transformations from opposite directions. Both nations are being brought to faith and to God, the Jews via miracles, the Egyptians via plagues. And in an episode in my other podcast, or one of my other podcasts called This Jewish Life, right before Pesach, we speculated that there is a fundamental difference between the Exodus narrative as told in Scripture in the book of Exodus and the Exodus narrative that's featured in the Haggadah that we read on Pesach, wherein in Scripture we're following the story of Pharaoh and what happens to the Jewish people is largely omitted. Whereas the narrative of the Haggadah is almost entirely for the perspective of the Jewish people and what befell them and what they experienced and what they saw and what they learned and how they were changed. So we have two versions of the same story from the point of view of the Egyptians in Scripture and from the point of view of the Jewish people in the Haggadah. And we speculated that our sages tell us that the Egyptian redemption from exile, which was the first redemption that our nation experienced, that is the blueprint that is the model of all future redemption. And the fact that this redemption or this transformation happened to two different groups of people in two entirely different, almost opposing ways, that shows us that there is a spectrum for redemption. And our future redemption, i.e. the idea of Messiah, can happen in one of two very different ways. Like the Talmud tells us, Messiah will come in a generation that's entirely righteous or in a generation that's entirely wicked. What kind of generation begets messianic redemption? The answer is really any kind of generation. But the nature of that redemption is very different when it comes about in a generation that's entirely righteous versus in a generation that's entirely wicked. And the idea here is, we are promised that we will have Messiah. The messianic redemption is set in stone. That is not in our hands. We have no free will to change that. However, our free will still matters greatly in the subject of Messiah. Because via our free will, we choose what kind of messianic redemption We get. We could choose to become a generation that's entirely righteous. And then we will experience the equivalent of 10 miracles where we see our enemies fall before us and we get transformed and uplifted. And we're uplifted and it's all positive. Alternatively, we could choose to be generations entirely wicked. We could choose the pharaoh path, if you will, of redemption. And we too can be redeemed and transformed, not via 10 miracles, but via 10 plagues. And the result is the same, but what we look like and what are the conditions that bring about this transformation, vastly different if we choose the Pharaoh version, the 10 plagues version, or if we choose the 10 miracles version. And there's another deep idea over here. The Jewish people, they are living in Egypt for hundreds of years. And they have adopted a lot of the behavior and priorities and values and ideals of their Egyptian neighbors. In fact, we're told that the Egyptians were idolaters and the Jewish people, their Jewish subjects, were also idolaters, And what happens? The Jewish people leave Egypt, are saved from Egypt. We have the Exodus. And a month and a half later, we're at Sinai, experiencing the theophany, witnessing the Ten Commandments, being elevated to the levels of prophecy and getting Torah from God. How does that transformation happen? That's the subject of this Mishnah. We were changed fundamentally via these ten miracles and via witnessing the ten plagues that befell our overlords. But isn't it interesting that the venue of these plagues slash miracles are both in Egypt, ten plagues for the Egyptians, ten miracles for us in Egypt, and then we leave Egypt. And seven days later, we're out of Egypt, we're at the sea, and we have 10 additional plagues for the Egyptians and 10 additional miracles for us. Perhaps what this tells us is the Jewish people have become influenced by their Egyptian neighbors. And how does that change? It changes, well, if you see miracles and plagues, that's going to change your perspective a lot of things. But no matter what you witness, no matter what you see, no matter what you undergo, no matter what you learn via plagues and miracles, if you are still in the same location where the same habits and behaviors were acquired, were learned, you are not going to change. It's only once you leave your situation, you leave your comfort zone, you leave the place where you have acquired those Bad habits. You reinvent yourself. You're someplace else. You're a different place. You're in a, you're in a different situation. Only then can you have that final element of transformation. If you stay at the same stool, let's say, at the same role, in the same job, in the same city that you've always been in, you don't have the opportunity to have large, punctuated, equilibrium kind of changes where you could reinvent yourself. If you're in Egypt and you live in the same place with the same neighbors, no matter what happens to you, the transformation that's needed to take you from an enslaved Israelite and bring you to the Sinai cannot be complete. Only once you leave and you're in a new environment and you have New neighbors, really, because now you're no longer surrounded by the Egyptians. You, you're you in a new environment. And now is the leader, and you have the pillar of fire leading you at night, and you're enveloped by these magical clouds, and you start to eat the manna. You're in a different situation. The circumstances of your life have changed. Now, very rapid transformation can happen. They say that the most effective way to get someone who did not unfortunately grow up with Torah as the number one ideal, or did not grow up observant or religious in matters of halacha and Judaism. How do we change that? How does someone go from being not observant to being observant? So of course we say, I say, we all believe that Torah is the thing that binds us to God and binds us to our heritage more than anything else. So the more Torah you study, the more you're going to change. And that's true to a certain level. There are certain limitations. If you stay the same person, if you don't change your neighborhood, if you don't change your school, if you don't change your environment, where you work, where you live, if everything that's kind of auxiliary to you, the situation, the environment that you're in. If that doesn't change, it's very hard for you to kind of change your identity. The Jewish people, they're in Egypt. They have a certain Egyptian or Judeo-Egyptian identity. That cannot be completed no matter what happens. Ten miracles, ten plates, amazing things. Two people drinking out of one glass of water. For the Jew, he slurps up water. For the Egyptian, he slurps up blood. Amazing. What an incredible thing to witness. What an amazing miracle. What an amazing plate. No matter what you see, your identity cannot be changed. You have to change the circumstances, the environment in which you live, and then you could change your identity. The Jewish people, they have to have something else that happens outside of Egypt. Ten plates slash ten miracles outside of Egypt. In one day, they go from being Egyptians subjugated, submitted to the Egyptian way of life, now they are an independent nation. If we are fortunate enough to be influenced by Torah, to be moved by the veracity and the power and the awesomeness and the meaning of a Jewish way of life, and we want to say, you know what, I want to make a big move in my life. I want to start keeping Shabbos. I want to start keeping kosher. I want to change something that really orients around my identity, who I am. The best, most effective way to do that is to change the environment. To move to a neighborhood that's more conducive to that. A neighbor, let's say, that has a shul that is in walking distance. To go spend a few months in Israel and yeshiva. And if you want to do that, send me an email. I'll help you arrange that at To change the environment in which you live, that's the portal to change your identity. The Jewish people, they witnessed a lot of great things in Egypt and that spurred them to make a move. But once you're spurred to make a move, you have to have something else that happens in the new environment to concretize the fact that you are no longer the person you were yesterday. When we get a chance to move, to change, to start a new job, a new career, move to a new city, do something different, we have the opportunity to reinvent ourselves. The Jewish people, they got that opportunity at the sea, and with 10 miracles and 10 plagues, forever the nation was changed. I thank you all for listening. This is Rabbi Yaakov Volbe coming to you from the Torch Center in Balmy, shall we say, verging on stiflingly hot Houston, Texas. This is the Ethics Podcast. As you well know, I am the proud host of many podcasts, the Parsha Podcast, Jewish History Podcast, Ethics Podcast, Mitzvah Podcast, Torah 101, This Jewish Life. Listen to them all, five-star reviews, and send me an email, RabbiWalby at gmail.com.